Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 362 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Ben Musgrave speaks with Anne Morgan about writing across cultures, creating drama over Zoom, the value of writing groups, and the importance of trusting yourself. Ben Musgrave is an award-winning playwright and a lecturer in script writing at the University of East Anglia. I first got to know him when we were both in our 20s through a writing group that used to meet at the Doghouse pub in South London. What feels like centuries later, it was a treat to catch up with him and hear how his career has developed. So, Ben, how did playwriting start for you? Well, it started at university where I was both kind of interested in writing, I was interested in writing prose, but also doing a lot of plays and, and acting and things like that. And I initially started writing plays because I thought it would be kind of a good way of learning how to write dialogue in prose, um, but then kind of really got hooked by it and wrote a play about my local library where, where I used to work in Ilford or inspired by that and it was a comedy and just it was just lovely to see people perform it and just to, to hear people laughing really and and, fi- and sort of being in a theatre with other people as this world is unfolding um, and I kind of got really hooked by it and there was a playwright at my university a playwright in residence called Chris Hannon who's a fantastic playwright and he just kind of kind of showed me <laughs> a life that could be I suppose and that yeah that was that was how I started off. I was wondering about the, the business of becoming a playwright because I feel like I understand, you know, how one goes about trying to publish books. Having been through that myself, I know how, you know, the steps that I would advise someone to take. But it seems to me that the business of being a playwright is is that much more fraught because you have to get so many more people to believe in your work in order to mm. put it on to start off with. So how how do you go about doing that? Well, yeah, that's a really good question. And it probably begins with believing in it yourself and trusting yourself with it. And that process and something that I I kind of teach script writing and playwriting now. And one of the things I do find myself saying quite often, um, actually, number one is trust yourself. And number two is read your play out loud. And there's something about reading out loud and reading your play out loud that forces you or invites you to see your play as it will be when it is real unfolding in time and in space and when you can kind of see your play and hear your play and make it real for yourself um, it's at that point that people will also be able to see it and feel it and so um so that's the first stage but then of course you know you you know then there's sending it around then there's actors then there's producers then there's money then there's rehearsals then there's first nights then there's reviews and all and all that but I think it all be I guess it begins with something simple which is it needs to be a real thing and then you need to find people to do it really and that doesn't have to be a doesn't have to involve a famous director but it does involve people willing to read it or then stand up and read it and then then perform it and I guess sort of engaging a community of people who feel an interest in putting it on when I was younger I was sort of you know very interested in in sort of enormous theatres putting on my work 
and sort of famous people being in them and things like that. But the more and more I get go, kind of keep going, the more important I just realise it is is just just to find the right people, the, the right community to make it real with you. So, OK, in terms of an agent, when does the agent come into it? When did the agent come into it for you with your work? Well, I was sort of was lucky in a way or very lucky in a way in that I did an MA in playwriting at Goldsmiths, which was a kind of wonderful thing to do. Um, And it gave me a year to kind of really luxuriate in what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be as a writer. And I wrote a play on that MA and was sort of quite happy with it and sent it off various places and sent it to a place called the Bruntwood Prize, which is a playwriting competition. It was the first year that that playwriting competition was running. And then I went off to work at the Birmingham Rep because I wanted to and sort of have always wanted to work with with writers as well as just be a writer as part of my career, as part of my practice. And somehow this play that I'd written on my MA started progressing further and further through the Bruntwood playwriting competition. And at the same time, and this was about going on from a year after I sent it in, and I kind of began to realise that I was spending all my time working with other writers and I wasn't, I just kind of let let my writing go to some extent and I decided to leave the Birmingham Rep and then just a few weeks later I ended up winning the the Bruntwood Prize which was a sort of an extraordinary vindication for me of like committing to writing but as a result of that things came along and having won the prize I was in a good position to kind of choose an agent in a way which many many writers aren't in in a position to do and you know people were kind of obviously interested having having won that prize so I ended up getting an agent through that but you know I think agents do wonderful things for you and can be great friends along the way and great supporters and champions of you but I think there's a real risk sometimes in young writers especially new writers becoming fixated on getting an agent because in truth the way you get work is by and large through the relationships that you have built yourself through doing endless evenings of short plays with friends of yours through being on programs with fellow writers through being on script panels with people and I kind of think that in in a way that sort of the best way of getting a play on or making something happen is is through relationships that already exist by sort of finding funding by bringing people in by pulling in old contacts by working with people you know who you've met two years ago or 15 years ago through networking through meeting people and it's often we, we often kind of imagine that getting an agent is a kind of golden ticket and sort of as soon as that happens the phone the phone doesn't stop ringing but in fact I think you know, it's, it's largely down to you to make those things um, happen. And the agents can, sometimes agents find you work, um, but sometimes what an agent is really useful for is, you know, getting the contract right. We actually met years ago, didn't we, first at, mm. um, as a writing, part of a writing yeah. group, the Doghouse Writing Group, which I know has been very important in your writing career. Tell me about that. How has that been involved in, in making you the playwright that you are? Yeah, so I joined the doghouse when it was, so we, we, we used to meet in a pub in Vauxhall Kennington called the Doghouse Pub. That's where we got the name from. But we haven't always actually met there. We have, probably haven't met there since since you were there, I think. <laughs> and, um, and at the time we had a sort of remarkable array of writers who've been with us, you know, from you to Lucy Caldwell to Jack Thorne to Michael Bim to Daniel Taylor and various others. And it's been tremendously 
important to me. And this group was originally actually sort of emerged out of two or three friends who met doing the script writing MA at the University of East Anglia, where kind of interestingly enough, I now teach. And they, you know, kind of came from that tradition of the writer's workshop, where, you know, every week, someone would have a piece of work that we wanted to bring to the table, and we will all have read it beforehand. And so sort of we talk about it and work it through and discuss it and diagnose it and praise it and explore it. And this way of working has been sort of you know, we've been going 20 years probably now, and we've had our lulls, um, but we've been going for, you know, we've been meeting maybe at least once a month, twice a month, three times a month, four times a month, you know, all, all this time. And it's been an amazing thing to to get to know the minds of other people. And there are usually about five of us, you know, we've had people come and go. And what's amazing is how you get to know someone else's mind and, and sort of where someone else, you know, sort of there's one person who always sort of kicks us off you know segues from the the drink to the discussion and you sort of know that if you know if matt says this you kind of you need to pay attention to that and i always find myself kind of talking last somehow and sort of going off on a weird tangent but somehow my weird tangent is not entirely valueless you know in the context of what everyone else has said so you sort of learn to listen and you learn how to talk about someone's work you learn what to disregard <laughs> and learn what to pay attention to but it it's something that i'd really something that we you know potentially can all find our way into one of those things and you know it's something that you make yourself um and you know we've become great friends really over the years as well yeah i think that that's such an important comment isn't it learning what to listen to and what to disregard for the workshop process i know that's something that i was also on the uea course but in the the novel the fiction Mm. um stream and i remember I was very young when I started there and and probably a little bit too malleable and too adaptable to other people's comments. And and I think if I had my time again, that's something that I would work on very much. So Mm. listening, focusing. Do you, now that you were a lecturer on a similar, on on the the script writing course, is that something that you foster in your, in your groups with students trying to help them to discern what's going to be helpful for their work in that way? Yes, I I think so. And Again, it's it's sort of interesting. We've been working online for this mm-hmm. this year, and so we've been exploring new ways of workshopping. And you know, so the way we're using the chat function, or the the way that we're using websites like Padlet, or kind of different ways of sharing work with each other and commenting on work. But but yeah, l- learning how to listen, sort of understanding that very often the best feedback is a question rather than a statement. One of the things I've learned is that every writer is is different. It's kind of peculiar. I remember a load of playwrights once got together, kind of really disgruntled with the UK theatre new writing industry. And we were kind of crossed with how literary management was treating us, the way theatres were treating us, the way that we we were being forced into various development processes that we didn't want to be involved in. And we all sat down together to try and agree a kind of manifesto for how how we should work with writers, how all writers want to be developed. 
And what we realise is it's completely impossible that one person wants to start from the synopsis and another person hates that. One person loves readings and another person hates it and finds it really hopeless you know there'll be a kind of dramaturgical intervention you know some piece of screenwriting advice that you know would really hit hit someone square in the heart but it will kind of really throw off somebody else Mm. so to get back to that original question what I think we learn is that you know, you have to be quite judicious in the advice that you give and the suggestions that you make, if, if any, in the questions that you ask. And also to just understand that not everybody thinks in the same way as you do and works in the same way as you do. With um, playwriting, it's fascinating to me because I, as a novelist, I will work through a number of drafts before anyone else reads my work generally and although of course after that there's usually an editorial process and things change again but it seems to me for certainly from what I've seen of your work and and other playwrights that a lot of work happens in the rehearsal room Mm. often how do you balance that are you someone who does gets most of the script down and then it's just refining it or do you does, does some scenes develop in the rehearsal room how does that how does that work well, it really differs from project to project, but I think I, I don't know the answer. And it's sort of I talked about how different how all writers are different. Mm-hmm. But in a way, all writers are different from the writer they were in the last project as well. And I have sometimes spent years and years working on a play, maybe as you do with a novel where, you know, you go through it over and over again. You, you work and rework it before it's sent mm-hmm. to anywhere. And sometimes for me, that's a, that's good. And sometimes for me, that's a terrible mistake. And I, I could move things forward so much more quickly if I had the bravery to take something rubbish into an R&D workshop or, you know, a week's development or, you know, just, just bring it in front of actors for a few days. Mm-hmm. I certainly love being an engineer in the rehearsal room. So bringing a script in and sort of go, oh, that's not working, is it? What happens if we do it like that? What if, what if we turn that up a little bit? What if we trim that off, you know? And actually, what if I move that from act one to act three? And how, what happens there? And that's a real pleasure, actually, to, to be a technician rather than some wretched artist or something um, in the rehearsal room. And some directors like me doing that and some directors <laughs> hate it. But I think that's a good model sometimes for, for playwrights in, in the rehearsal room rather than going, no, it's all perfect, you know, and sort of mouthing along the words, you know, the actors, are they getting it right? You know, just, just kind of how is, is this really working? Like, is this working as well as it could be? Mm. Yeah, and I've certainly worked, I've certainly been in processes when where very little has been finished when I brought it into the rehearsal room so sometimes when I've been working on a on a quite special kind of project like doing a project for example with um, a wonderful company called the big house who work with care leavers where where the material was kind of you know we had to do it all in about we had to write it all in about three or four weeks and then so we're bringing a very chaotic draft into the rehearsal room and that's having to be you know molded and changed and adapted and trimmed and worked through you know very very quickly I mean, I like working like that as well. Mm. I love that image of being an engineer um, in the work, in the rehearsal room. That's that's really um, powerful. I think. Obviously, we've lived through and may still be living through by the time people listen to this COVID nineteen and the pandemic, and that's had huge implications for many many people in lots of different ways. How has it affected that workshop process for you, that rehearsal room process? What's what's the difference now with the way you work like that? 
well, we might talk about it later, but there's a play I'm currently working on called Indigo Giant, which is a play set in Bengal and which I've been working on with Bangladeshi creatives as well as UK creatives on for some years. And the performance was planned for July 2020, and that was obviously cancelled by COVID. And so the, the question has always been, you know, when are we going to get to Bangladesh? And while this has been delayed, we've found, you know, this play is a kind of conversation, if you like, between the UK and Bangladesh. And we've suddenly discovered that we can actually rehearse while we're in London and some performers are in Bangladesh. Um, so we've been making a just a kind of, we've been filming some extracts of the play to kind of keep things moving. Well, they were broadcast at the at the British Council in, in Delhi. Mm. So, so a, a few weeks ago, I was sitting in London on a Zoom call with Jatinda Verma, the director in North London on a Zoom call, rehearsing with actors in Bangladesh mm. on a Zoom call in Dhaka, and it was the most extraordinary thing, like to be crossing the world like this and and literally having a conversation across the, a creative conversation like this across the globe. Mm-hmm. So we would we would not have conceived of that before the pandemic. Mm. And indeed, when Jatinda shot the film, he was in London watching the monitors of a camera that was in, in Bangladesh. Wow, how extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, I mean, because I've seen you, sh- you were kind enough to share with me some of the scenes from the film and it's been translated, hasn't it? So, yeah. Were you watching the rehearsals in Bengali? Yes, I was mm. I was watching the rehearsals in, in Bangla and I grew up a little bit in Bangladesh. I grew up in Bangladesh, so the kind of language is sort of in my heart. There's a sort of memory of water of it in in myself. So I kind of hear it and I'm at home somehow but that doesn't mean I understand much of it at all but the translator is a writer producer based in the UK called Lisa Lisa Garzi a performer as well amazing woman who who is also the producer of this cross-cultural project um, but she she translated it and it's all a very complicated conversation um, with itself with a with a 19th century Bengali play called Neil Dorpon, which was um, an 1860, an extraordinary response to the atrocities committed by British indigo planters in Bengal, and that was written by this Bengali playwright called Dina Bondu Mitro. And so Lisa's translation of my play is also kind of drawing from a sort of 19th century Bangla, Bengali, which... Uh, it's all very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very striking and quite stylized. A lot of the performance for novelists in recent years, there's been quite a lot of conversation around who's entitled to tell which story. And how did you feel as a as a white British heritage writer, although albeit with um, experience growing up in Bangladesh, approaching that? Because the story itself is about oppression, isn't it? It's about Mm. the uh, reaction against the cruelty of the ruling classes, the colonial history. How did you approach that? Well, it's a very good question. And I think the approach I have is that this is a journey I'm on. And I've been on a journey in terms of my relationship with Bangladesh all my life. Like it's the other country in my heart, really. And I've always been on a kind of search to work out what my relationship with that country is. And when I grew up there, I was always kind of aware of something, Mm -hmm. of a dynamic of subjection 
I suppose. And and this is a kind of um, actually a flimsy connection in a way or a, a flimsy way to answer your question but I think I'll hopefully sort of get to the right place eventually. <laughs> when I was growing up in Bangladesh as a child we used to visit this extraordinary bungalow out in rural Bangladesh in a place called Bolapur and it was a missionary hospital I think specifically an eye hospital but it was a kind of glorious old place by the banks of the river with vultures swooping overhead it was a kind of kind of old stone bungalow with high ceilings and the fixtures for punkers on the you know from the ceiling and whitewashed walls and this sort of sacred sort of the scent of something ancient in this place and I always knew there was something about this place that was important and then I was commissioned to write this play about indigo and I discovered that this missionary hospital had in fact been the bungalow of an indigo planter (laughs) and that there'd actually been an extraordinary battle close to the site of this bungalow where villagers had repelled the British planters using agricultural implements and wood apples and, and things like that they'd kind of expelled the British planters from this village so I I began to feel like there were some sort of curious coincidences and connections that I had with the story of indigo cultivation. And then I went to I went on this research trip to Bangladesh to explore this. I was funded by the British Council and also the Royal Society of Literature to to go on this trip. And again, this is a flimsy way of putting it, but I just felt like I was on the journey of my life on this trip and that every day I was sort of going deeper and deeper into this story and deeper and deeper into, I don't know, the nature of empire and the nature of what the British were doing in India and Bengal. And in this play, Nildarpan, central to the play are these two planters, these two British planters. And in the play, they are portrayed, and I use this these words kind of, I don't know whether advisedly or not, but vaguely, deliberately, they are portrayed as savages. They are sort of psychotic, demonic figures who speak in a kind of broken Bengali, much as we would have a foreigner in a play speak in a kind of broken English accent. And I was profoundly shocked to see white British characters portrayed in this way, because I've never seen characters like I've never seen myself on stage in this way Mm. and you know whenever we see the British in stories about the British in India we may see a kind of vaguely psychopathic character you know like Colonel Merrick in the Jewel in the Crown or something like that but there's always a kind of somehow we we're nevertheless seeing the world through their perspective and here in this Bengali play the perspective was not with the planters and so For me, it's been a journey in working with another perspective and trying to kind of kind of go through the looking glass and seeing the British in India from from the other side. And so that's why it it doesn't feel wrong for me to do it. And as I as I write it and as I've gone on the journey, I feel I I feel I don't know, I just I just I feel a kind of uh, something kind of within me that feels like this is there's a sort of incredible charge for me. Yeah. The production itself is being directed by Jatinda Verma and the um, producer translator is Lisa Ghazi and we're working with artists in Bangladesh, performers in Bangladesh on the play. So 
I do also feel that it's, although I'm the the writer of the play, that it's very much a kind of conversation with people, both from a sort of Indian and Bangladeshi British perspective, but also a conversation with with Bangladesh itself. Much closer to home, you've you've written uh, another of your plays that I read recently, Crushed Shells and Mud, which although written some years before coronavirus hit, has uncanny echoes in the time of the mm. pandemic. Um, I know from your foreword that you some of the ideas in it were inspired by talking to people about the impact of antiretroviral drugs in Uganda mm. and, and how the AIDS, um, although it's not explicitly stated in the play that it's about AIDS, that's, that's clearly the disease that's at the heart or certainly inspired what's going on. However, some of the things that happen in it are extraordinarily parallel to what we've lived through recently with uh, cities being cordoned off and restrictions over people's movement and things like that. How does it feel thinking back on that project now in light of what, what we've experienced since? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I haven't, I'm not sure that there have been that many people who've read the play <laughs> since the pandemic has has happened and that's interesting that you do find those parallels to be quite clear and i think in this play i, I was not particularly interested in a kind of blockbuster kind of pandemic but but one that sort of changes the way people feel about themselves the play was inspired by this trip to uganda in oh i can't remember when it was maybe 2010 or 2012 where I went to visit um, a clinic in Kampala. Antiretroviral drugs in Uganda had been sort of fairly widely rolled out. And people had sort of experienced, in many cases, a kind of dramatic rebirth as a result of taking these drugs. You know, sometimes in some cases, their families had booked their funerals already, um, and then they started taking these antiretrovirals, and suddenly, you know, they, they were reborn. And I met this group of people and it was, what I noticed was that there was a sense of positive identity. Uh, so to be positive, to be HIV positive within this community gave them a kind of evangelical vigour, like a kind of zeal somehow. And there was something kind of fascinating about how positive this sense of, this new sense of identity had been when they had been kind of reborn through taking these antiretrovirals. And I was I was really interested in a story about a woman who was positive, HIV positive, who was part of this sort of sense of sense of rebirth, whose partner wanted to sleep with her to contract the virus in order to become part of what she had become part of, if you like. And I found that sort of sort of troubling and interesting and fascinating and, and sort of began to become interested in the story of a of a boy who falls in love with a girl who has a, who has a virus and i've always been interested in stigma and i think that's that's especially where a kind of aids hiv has a real parallel in crushed shells because certainly what i was exploring in or seeing in uganda was a sense that this sort of profound sense of stigma was something that hobbled people and held people back and gave them a sense of a kind of a very almost kind of concrete not concrete there's like there was something inside them some kind of oily black churning mass inside them that was holding them back and making them feel terrible about themselves but this could be thrown off um, this sense of stigma could be thrown off 
so the, the play the crushed shells and mud is, is very much about stigma and overcoming stigma and what's kind of interesting so to go back to your question about the pandemic this pandemic the coronavirus pandemic is as it emerged what i was sort of interested in was to what extent do people feel ashamed of having coronavirus to what extent does it like you know you may have come across you know um Susan Sontag's illness as metaphor, the idea that certain diseases seem to mean certain things, you know, kind of tuberculosis has, a, has it was a kind of the romantic disease of the artist, whereas cancer too is a sort of maybe a this disease that has still for some people has a kind of stigma. And so sort of the question for me was kind of like, you know, so in, in Crushed Shells and Mud, it was it was a kind of sexual, it was a disease of sexual transmission, but it was also, you know, written sort of around the time of Brexit, really, or actually just before Brexit. It was about people of alternative lifestyles being stigmatised, I think, and it was somehow a disease that seemed to affect liberals, if you like. But I think with coronavirus, I'm not so sure whether it's become a meaningful disease like whether it has created stigmas for people i guess we're beginning to think of it as a disease that you know particularly affects people in areas of deprivation and and so on but you know boris johnson got it so <laughs> anyway so but yeah but certainly the parallel you know when i was writing it the idea of the quarantine or a london you know the london cordon i think i refer to or something like that and the sense of sort of economic devastation wreaked by a pandemic is something that's you know just seems kind of normal and real now to me but certainly felt very dystopic and outlandish when I was writing it. Mm. One of the things that I really enjoyed about reading it was um, your stage directions are absolutely beautiful I mean sometimes you're they're so succinct the way you capture exactly what you want the emotion to be in that moment. And I found myself wondering, I, I felt sorry actually for audiences of the play that they wouldn't get to see these directions. But I wondered, it made me think about the choices you have to make as a playwright in terms of when to specify and when not to specify. And thinking, you know, for example, about Shakespeare's problem plays and the ambiguity at the end is often in the fact that there's very little direction as to how something's supposed to be taken. And so you have these productions that are very sunny at the end and others that are very dark and they all use the same text, but it's possible to have very different interpretations. I was wondering how, how do you know when to let the cast and the director choose and when, when you need to step in and, and signpost clearly? Yeah, well, it's a perennial question, that one. And, and I think when I started writing, I was much more anxious about you know, the production exactly realising what, what I could see in my head. And I do think that it's important that directors, designers, performers really go on a journey with the text that you give them and can take that text where, where they need to go. But what I also think is important is to think about the universe of the play and go, well, what, can, what do I see when I look into the universe of the play? What what elements are important? Like, is a tree important? Is a warm day important? Is a kind of milky light important? Is a handkerchief important? And it's not that I'm going, what am I looking at on stage? I'm going, what am I looking at in the universe of this play? What can I see there? And that's kind of the distinction that I make. And you often see young sort of new writers 
writing scene descriptions where it's kind of like someone enters stage right and then they'll give a kind of direct note to the to the actor about how desperately to say a line or something like that and I, I kind of don't think I I don't think it's my job to direct the production through the scene description but I do think it's my job to, to say what I can see um, and what what is there in the in the world well Ben it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for um taking the time and it's it's fascinating and I wish you all the best with projects in the future thank you Anne it's been lovely to reconnect and and chat and it's been a pleasure thanks very much for having me that was Ben Musgrave in conversation with Anne Morgan you can find out more about Ben on his website at www.ben-musgrave.co.uk and that concludes episode 362 which was recorded by Anne Morgan and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 363, Laura Barnett considers the myth that writing needs a lot of spare time and Roz Schwartz explores exciting developments for literature in translation. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.